Well, good morning. Uh, it is a privilege to be with you today. My name is Andrew. Uh, I currently live over in Orlando, Florida. I minister at a church called Nona Church. Uh, but I was born and raised here in Palm Bay, Florida. I recognize and know many of you from when I was a kid and a youth. Um, and I am sure that you already know this, but I, I want to make sure that I say it. You all are blessed in the fact that you have been given the gift of Ben as your pastor. He didn't tell me to say that, but, uh, but it's true. Uh, ben has served many roles in my life. He has been a teacher to me. He has been a coach, a worship leader, a youth leader, a pastor. And uh, yeah, I'm grateful for the influence he's had in my life to shape and form me to walk in the way of Jesus. And what a blessing it is that he is the one ministering to you, pouring his life into yours and making God's love tangible in this faith family. And so I just want to let you know, I've been to a number of churches. You have a great pastor. He's a gift. So this morning, we are going to be in James 1, verses 22 through 27. And I'm excited to open up God's word with you to learn from our Lord. And as I read this passage over you, I want you to hear the words of your creator, to hear the words of your God as he speaks to you. So hear God's words. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I ask that you would bring your word to your people through your servant. I ask that your Holy Spirit would work amongst us. God, where we are cast down and hurting, would you heal us and lift us up? God, where we are prideful and disobedient, I ask that your Holy Spirit would convict us, reshape us, reform us, Lord. Where we are out of step with you, would you bring us in step with your Holy Spirit? And would you teach us today? Would you give us and form in us exactly what each of our souls, each of our hearts need today? I pray all these things, ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So Frederick Douglass, he was a man born in the state of Maryland in the early 1800s, born into slavery, and he had a remarkable life. So as a young boy, he taught himself to read. He ran away, escaped slavery, and ended up becoming an internationally known figure. Uh, he was a politician. He was an orator. Uh, he was famously the first black man to ever receive from a major political party a nomination to be the president of the United States. But one thing you may not know about Frederick Douglass is that he was also a Christian. Uh, he was a brother in Christ. And a lot of his work as a politician, as a speaker, was focused on bringing the truths of God's word into contact with the cultural idols of our country. At the conclusion of his autobiography, Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, an American Slave, Douglass wrote these words about the American Christianity that he had experienced. And I'll warn you, these, are, these may be hard words to hear, maybe difficult words to receive, but I would encourage you, hear what Douglass is writing here 
as the words of a brother in the faith, looking at his time, looking at his context, and thinking on what God's heart has to say about how we ought to live. He said this, I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial, and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. I look upon it as the climax of all misnomers, the boldest of all frauds, and the grossest of all libels. You see, Frederick Douglass saw and suffered under what many people in our time see as well, that there can often be a vast difference between what we as Christians proclaim to be true and what we actually put into practice on the ground in our private and our public lives. This lack of wholeness and what is said to be true and what we actually do, it is something that our culture hates And for good reason. I think that we can all resonate with the hatred and being tired of political leaders or religious leaders saying one thing and doing the opposite. I think we're tired of people pretending to be one thing but hiding something very different. And it's not just us and it's not just culture who are tired of hypocrisy, of false humility or fake Niceness. It's actually Jesus, too, who stands against hypocrisy, who stands against saying one thing and doing another. Our cultural aversion to hypocrisy, it actually expresses something of the heart of God that we find here in the book of James. And so as we dig into this passage of James 1, 22 through 27, we're going to unpack this big idea from the text. If you're taking notes, this is a great place to start. The way of Jesus is not merely a fact for us to learn, but a faith for us to live. The way of Jesus is not merely a fact for us to learn, but a faith for us to live. And so let's take the first part of that statement first. The way of Jesus is not merely a fact for us to learn. So in the last few years, the Holy Spirit has really been taking me and my wife, Arielle, on this journey. It's this journey of Sabbath, of intentional Rest. And, you know, we hold that the Sabbath is this practice that God has given to his people of taking a day to cease from work and to worship and to rest, to be together, to delight in him and in his good gifts. And so our church has been teaching a lot on Sabbath over the last few years, and we've set aside time to really dig in, process, talk through what would it look like for us to Sabbath well. We've read books like The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. And we've been in this process for about four years of implementing a weekly day of Sabbath rest in our family's life. For us, we call this day of rest Shabbat. And it's been something that really our entire family looks forward to. Our boys in particular really get excited about Shabbat because it's a day of no work. Mom's not working at the hospital. Dad's not working at the church. We get to be together all day. We get to eat good food. We get to have great family worship. We get to go on family adventures. For my family, Shabbat is the best day of the week. And so a few months ago, I was really confused because it was the day after Shabbat. And my son Asher, he's the oldest, he wakes up and he looks at me and he says, Dad, is today Shabbat? 
And I'm like, no, yesterday was Shabbat. Don't you remember? We had this great day. We did all these things. And he says, because, Dad, I know that yesterday couldn't have been Shabbat because you worked. And he was right. For almost the whole day, I did not work. But I did choose to take a phone call. And I did choose to stay on that phone call for a while, working through work things. And my son noticed. And my son was deeply, deeply hurt. I ended up apologizing to Asher, to Ariel, to the rest of my family. But it was not until that night. I mean, this happened in the beginning of the day. This is our first interaction. That evening, when I'm putting him down to bed, he looks at me and he says, Dad, I forgive you for working on Shabbat. Now, whether that was manipulation of my emotions or just deep woundedness or both, I'm not sure, but it happened. See, it was not enough for Asher that I knew the significance of Sabbath. It was not enough for Asher that I knew that I was aware of the necessity for a day to be set apart for rest and worship because my knowledge alone did not make me present and fully engaged with my family on that day. Only my obedience could have done that. See, at the very beginning of this passage, James writes, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. You see, knowledge is good. And we will talk about the goodness of knowledge a little bit later. But knowledge without action is self-deception. I mean, we damage ourselves. We damage those around us when we receive God's word. We receive God's truth. We receive God's gospel. And then we file it away into the mental category of mere knowledge. We go against the very nature of ourselves as humans made in God's image when we know God's word but do not do it. There's this line from a theologian named James K.A. Smith that I love. He says, you are not a brain on a stick. I love that. I love that just mental picture. You see a brain and a stick. That's not what you are. You are more than that. You, you are a thinking being, but you are more than just a thinking being. You are more than what you know. And God has revealed himself to you, not just to change what you know, what you think, or how you think, but to change what and how you desire and how you live your life as well. God speaks to the totality of who we are. For those of us who follow Jesus this morning, God makes claims on the totality of who we are, on how we think, how we love, and how we live. And so why do we do this? James wouldn't be writing about being, do, being doers and not hearers only if we didn't have this problem. Why do we do this? Why do we deceive ourselves to hear God's word but not put it into practice? Why do we sometimes think that what God says is good and beautiful and true is those things but then not live it out? I think that we find it all too easy sometimes to put God into an intellectual box because then we can shield ourselves from him, distance ourselves from his commands. We deceive ourselves into being hearers of the word and not doers because it feels safer to accumulate knowledge about God instead of being spoken to by God. It feels less risky to study God than to surrender to him. And I don't want you to get me wrong. 
I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. There is nothing wrong with the knowledge of God. It's good and it's right. I'm not anti-intellectual and neither is Jesus. Jesus literally designed your capacity to think and to reason. He is the author of logic and he called his creation of your intellectual abilities good. And so neither James nor Jesus would call us as God's people to jettison knowledge. I mean, look at how James describes the person who treats God's words rightly. This is what he says in 23 through 25. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. James calls us to look intently with focus and attention and time and to persevere in this, to concentrate on God's perfect law of liberty. James calls us to, he invites us to know God. And this is really important to grasp onto, looking at this problem of hypocrisy in the church, of saying one thing and doing another. Some people will say that the problem with Christians who don't practice what they preach is that they're too theological. I disagree. The problem when we don't practice what we preach is that we are not being theological enough. The problem isn't with God. The problem isn't with his word. The problem isn't with the study of God or the study of his word. The problem is with us. John Frame gives this wonderful definition of theology that I think is really helpful to us as we think on this topic. He says this, theology is the application of God's word by persons to all of life. Let me read that again. Theology, it is the application of God's word by persons to all of life. I think that this really lines up with what James is saying to us. To borrow James's language, if, if James and John Frame were riffing on each other, I think he might say this, theology that is pure and undefiled before God must include action. It must include application by real people in real context to every real aspect of human existence. If we relegate religion to our head, keeping God away from our heart and hands, the issue is not that theology is bad. The issue is that we're practicing bad theology, incomplete theology. The study of God, the knowledge of God is intended for our whole person, our head, our heart, and our hands, and it's meant to be applied to all of life. The knowledge of God is good and godly, but the mere knowledge of God, knowledge without application, is destructive. How so? So I've always struggled with the meal of breakfast. Some people, you know, have breakfast as their favorite meal. For me, breakfast is the most complicated meal. Uh, I'm either all in or completely out. Like I just either want a cup of black coffee and nothing else, or I want a huge plate of like eggs Benedict with home fries, like the whole thing. I'm not into this whole light breakfast 
you know, smoothie, little toast. That's, that's not my jam. Um, and a few years ago, my family got into this breakfast groove of making eggs. I was making breakfast burritos, scrambled eggs. As a millennial, I, of course, had to make avocado toast with a runny egg on top. Uh, bagel sandwiches with fried eggs. It was a great time of life. But then my son Abraham started eating table food, and we realized he had an allergy to eggs. Life was ruined. (laughs) See, when I became aware of this, when I gained the knowledge that Abraham could not eat eggs, merely knowing that fact without applying it to what I cooked for breakfast for my family would have been foolish and destructive, damaging to my son, damaging to me because my wife would have killed me. See, what we do with what God has given us in his word and in the gospel, it has real implications. What James is talking about, what I'm talking about here, this is not not about like checking off the boxes to say, oh, I have good theology, I have complete theology. This is real on the ground for real people, particularly for our neighbors, as we think about those who are outside of the church, those who are not part of the people of God, what we do matters. Ray Ortland he gets at this when he says, a church can unsay with its culture what it says with its doctrine. That hurts, so let's read it again. A church can unsay with its culture what it says with its doctrine. If what we believe as Christians stays up here in our head or just here in our mouth and it never makes its way down into the nitty-gritty choices of everyday life, we have maligned God's name and mistreated our neighbors. When we say that God is loving and that God is just, but our conversation around the water cooler or our comments on social media are neither full of love or charity or truth. We unsay what's true because we represent God to our neighbors. When we say that God has invested his image into every human being, but we treat the poor and the vulnerable like they are less than us, like they do not have inherent dignity and worth, we unsay what's true. When we say that God is the Lord of our lives, but we pour our time and our treasure and our talent into living our way instead of God's way, picking and choosing what parts of his truth will apply to our own lives, we unsay what's true. I mean, James is more blunt than I am. In verses 26 through 27, he says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is, say it with me, worthless. Worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained. From the world. Religion that is kept in an intellectual box is worthless. A Christianity that is merely a fact to learn is no Christianity at all. I mean, this is why your church is committed to being disciples and making disciples. 
Because action and obedience, discipleship to Jesus is absolutely necessary if we are gonna say that you are a people who walk in the way of Jesus, who follow God, who are disciples of him. I mean, James says it like it is a little bit later in this book, in, in chapter four, verse 17, when he writes, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Knowledge without obedience is disobedience. Knowledge without obedience is sin. That is the bad news this morning. Because you and I know that there are gaps in between what we know and what we do. I do not live up to what James says here. And if we're honest with ourselves, I don't think any of us do. So what do we do? Where, we, where do we go from here? What, what, how would we get to the point of practicing good theology as doers of God's word, practitioners of pure and undefiled religion? This brings us to the second part of our big idea, the, the good news for this morning, that the way of Jesus is a faith for us to live. By nature, uh, I am a rule follower. If you give me a rule, I'll follow it. You give me a standard, I'll meet up to it. You give me an unrealistic expectation, I will probably be incredibly unhealthy to try and meet it, because I think I can. By nature, my wife, Arielle, is not a rule follower. It's, amen. It's not that she's anti-rules, but that she is pro-fun. You know, right after we got married, we were driving up to the Smoky Mountains for our honeymoon, and Ariel asked me if we could pull over to take some pictures of these beautiful wildflowers on the side of the road. That is a reasonable request, right? Yes, it is. Newlywed me did not understand that. In my mind, I start thinking, okay, Roads are for driving, right? And so we're driving. We do not have a vehicular emergency, so there's no need for us to pull over to the side of the road. So, so what if we get in trouble for doing this? What if someone comes along and, and begins to like chastise me? I get in trouble for doing what I'm not supposed to do by stopping to take pictures of these beautiful flowers. Praise Jesus. I did not listen to myself, but instead said, yes, ma'am, I will do what you want, my bride. I did not follow my internal rule-following anxiety, and I thankfully did not create a marital crisis on day like three. <laughs> and we did stop. We took pictures. It was beautiful. And surprisingly, the full weight and wrath of the law did not come crashing down upon our heads. See, one of the things that's been really great for me in being married to Ariel for the almost nine years now uh, is that she has helped me to ask different questions, questions like, why is this the way we do it? Is that an actual rule or just your own like internal anxiety of self-perfection? Or why am I doing this when I could be having fun? These are great questions to ask. You know, in the same way that mere knowledge does not comprise the way of Jesus, it does not make up our faith as disciples of Jesus, neither does mere obedience. Doing all on its own, good works, all on their own, don't make up Jesus's view of the good, flourishing life. Discipleship to Jesus, obedience, it is intimately connected to faith. 
Obedience, good works must be inspired by faith, sustained by faith, and faithful. In chapter 2, James expands on this passage that we've read this morning in 22 through 27. He uses this new language of faith and works. And so we're going to read a little chunk of it, and there's a bunch that we won't cover, probably questions that will spring up that I won't even come close to answering. But what I want you to listen for in this passage is how James describes the obedience that God desires from his people and that he desires for his people. So this is, this is James 2, 14 through 26. Listen to God's word. James says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works, and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Okay, so did you notice the relationship here between works and faith? It's this relationship between obedience and faith. The obedience that God desires from us, the obedience that God desires for us, it comes from faith. Faith, which is belief in God, it's trust in God, it's dependence on God. This is where obedience comes from, and it's what sustains obedience over the long haul. Now, this passage that we just read in James 2, um, if we would look back in church history, this passage in particular has given the book of James a very checkered reputation. Uh, James has been accused of being anti-gospel or anti-Jesus because this passage can be read And it has been read as if James is telling us that we need to work our way to God through obedience, as if we need to earn God's acceptance through our good works. This passage has been read and interpreted as if James is talking about mere obedience, just gritting our teeth and digging deep to just choose to do what God says is good because we need to prove ourselves to God. And if that's what this passage is saying, then we would all do well to avoid it because that is not the message of the gospel. That is not the good news of the gospel, but that's also not what James is saying. James is not talking about salvation here in that initial first sense of being reconciled to God, being brought back into relationship with him. If we look at this passage, especially in 
in tandem with how Paul talks about what happened with Abraham in the book of Romans, what we would find here is that James is talking about sanctification. It's this second step of salvation. It's the ongoing process of God's saving of us being applied to and enjoyed in our lives as we become more like God. You see, good works don't save, they sanctify No matter how hard we try at this, no matter how long you have been a disciple of Jesus, we will always, as long as we're on this earth, continue to fall short of perfect obedience. No matter how long you have followed Jesus, none of us have arrived. We are all in the process of trying and failing and learning and then becoming more like Jesus. It is only Jesus who has perfectly obeyed God. It is only Jesus's good works that are the grounds for our justification with God. It is only Jesus that makes it so that we can be brought back to, put into good relationship with God. We depend on Jesus's obedience, God's acceptance of us, his invitation of, to us as sons and daughters in his family, heirs of his heavenly kingdom. It is not dependent on, it's not contingent on our faulty works, but on Jesus's pure and spotless righteousness. And so it's from this place of faith, belief in, depending on, trusting in Jesus, this place of freedom, This place of taking Jesus at his word when he says on the cross about God's judgment and plan, it is finished, that we are then liberated and enabled to obey. The gospel message is not, you need to do better. It's not that. It is this, God has done better. The gospel message is not, you need to do better. You need to pull yourself up by your ethical bootstraps and make it happen. No, it is that God has done better for you to make you like him. I know some of us have grown up in or been in church environments where it seemed to be all about works, spaces where God's commandments and laws apparently existed to crush our souls and self-worth. Others of us have been in or grown up in church environments where it seemed to be all about knowledge, spaces where we talked a lot about God but didn't do much in the way of responding to God. James gives us a different picture, a better picture of the church, one where we would lean in to know God and obey him. And all of that is a response to the God who knew us and loved us first. I think that this is the kind of church, this is the kind of people that you want to be here at New City. This is why the mission statement that you use to inspire and evaluate everything you do is this. It's to glorify God by being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. Discipleship to Jesus is not about mere obedience or mere knowledge. It's about knowing and following God, hearing and doing, faith and works. Does what James says here this morning feel hard to you? It should. Uh, it, It should feel difficult. But the difficulty of what James says here, this is not the kind of hard 
Whereas you're like in the climb section of your Peloton workout, uh, that you have to just dig down deeper to get it done. It's not about like gritting your ethical teeth and like turning up your self-motivation knob to say, fine God, you want me to do this? I'm gonna do it, let's go. No, 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 the kind of hard that James calls us to in obeying God with full integrity of being, it is so impossibly beyond us. It is so impossibly beyond our natural abilities that it forces us to look to Jesus, the pioneer, the perfecter of our faith, who has already gone before us in perfect obedience. It forces us, it calls us, it drives us to ask the Holy Spirit to plead with him, to enable and to empower us to walk in discipleship to Jesus, not just for a moment, not just for a sprint, not just for a season, but for all of life. On February 20th of 1895, Frederick Douglass came home excited and energized by this meeting he had just been part of to advance the cause of women's suffrage in the U.S. And as he, as he began to tell his wife, Helen, about the meeting, he suddenly grabbed his chest and fell to the floor dead. Frederick Douglass died on his feet. He passed away pursuing God's heart for human dignity. And as a student of God's word, as a student of the Holy Spirit, Frederick Douglass took God at his word and acted on it. He lived and died as one who put his knowledge into practice. And he was not a perfect man. Neither am I. Neither are you. But Frederick Douglass lived in his time what James calls us to live out today. That discipleship to Jesus, that the way of Jesus is not merely a fact for us to learn, but a faith for us to live so today, how is God calling you to obey? Where is the Holy Spirit convicting you about the inconsistency, about what you might confess to be true and what you actually do? Where have you grown weary in doing good? Where have you maybe slipped into a faith that stays in your head, but it needs to work its way out into your heart and hands as well? Where are you out of step with the word of God and the way of Jesus. Let's come to our God and bring those things before him now. Let's bring him our disobedience. Let's confess it to our heavenly father and receive forgiveness because of Jesus and receive help from the Holy Spirit so that we might continue to be disciples of Jesus. Let's pray that together.